Welcome to Call Jeshurun, a podcast from Temple B'nai Jeshurun, a vibrant and flourishing Reformed Jewish community in Short Hills, New Jersey. Welcome. I am Rabbi Matthew Gewertz. Call Jeshurun is where you can come to engage with teachings of relevant wisdom and music. You will hear from our clergy, staff, and guest speakers who will help bring meaning into a world that so badly needs it. If you would like to learn more about our congregation, please visit us at tbj.org. You have to excuse me. The um, I, I was not emotional um, in, a, in an effusive way while I was in Israel because there was so much coming at me at once. And then I, no surprise to you, he should start to pay me uh, profits from how much I mentioned his store's name, but I went to Oscars this morning and I walked in, and John and I always exchange gifts when he goes to Greece or I go to Israel. I bring him something back, and I said, John, this, this was not a shopping trip. And, uh, but I did bring you this ribbon, which is what's being worn. This is about to fall off of me. Um, and I'd like you to wear it, but I understand, given the day and age we live in and the judgment people are putting on us, if you don't, and he said, are you out of your mind? And he put his wrist out and he let me put it on him. And in the middle of Oscars of all places, I completely lost it. And uh, John, the owner of Oscars, and Matt, the rabbi at TBJ, had this huge embrace in the middle of the restaurant. I'm going to take this off just because I'm not going to try to t- tie it on while I'm talking to you. I am um, utterly torn apart. And I am exhausted, and I am more clear-eyed and laser-focused than I've been in this last month, and perhaps in the 27 years of my rabbinate. What I saw in the last four days is as dire as you think it is. It's as, 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 as existential as you think it is. It's as terrifying as you think it is. And God willing, you'll understand that it's also as hopeful as you should think it is. I don't add any of the following with extra melodrama or exaggeration, but a couple of you who have been here know this, that it's, it's war. It's, I've never flown into a place where there is war. What does that mean? It means that Ben-Gurion is empty because only El Al flights are going in. They've gone from something like 400 flights to 30. It means that when you walk the streets, you hear that murmur instead of the chatter. You see eyes that reflect communal depression. You do not see people between the ages of 18 and 40 because they're not on the streets. They're with their units, either down south or up north. Sometimes you see them in trucks. They're laying on their backs, smoking cigarettes laying on their bags with a face that's neither happy nor sad. It's just sort of this steely look because they know they're going to defend or to actually go right into a war zone. You see planes constantly above you. They're not El Al flights. They're fighter jets. They're helicopters. Military at sea. You see checkpoints in places that those of you who've traveled with us who have been there that you never see, 
checkpoints in the middle of a highway, that's the only reason there's traffic. It's because they're checking on people in the major and central parts of the country. You see flags like you've never seen flags before, like more than what I experienced at 9-11. Flags and there were signs, Lucia, that's one of them. That's all over the place. It says, Yachad Ninatzeach. Together, we're going to be victorious. Together, we're going to win. But every place, Lucy, keep on going to what else we see. Another one, the song that Lucy just sang, Ainli Eretz, you see that last letter, which should be at Tzadik, is actually a watchtower from Kibbutz Erez, our sister Kibbutz, Metro West's that was run over. Ainli Erez, Echeret, I don't have another Kibbutz besides this one. And that, of course, is a sign where they've been evacuated. They're Mitzpeh Ramon. Remember Mitzpeh Ramon, those of us who have gone there, that beautiful Bereshit hotel? It's not so beautiful down there. The scenery is beautiful. That's where they are. Lucy, go to the next one. And then, like just along the highway, there are tanks. Tanks, and this one, of course, with two of the 240 that are still kidnapped. So you know you're in a war zone when you see all of this through the regular streets of Israel. Beautiful scenery. Extraordinary, but that's what there is. Tonight, I want to share with you, because I can really talk to you for hours and hours. Because for the four days we were there, we woke up at 6 in the morning, and we didn't go to sleep until 1 o'clock the next morning. Now, I will admit to you that breakfasts were with people that I just wanted to check in with. 11 o'clock at night was scotch with people that I just wanted to check in with. I could have gone to sleep an hour or two earlier. But what was the point of being there unless you were fully engaged? So four stories and three lessons. There's more. You could come Sunday morning. I'm going to teach in an elongated way then. And there'll be others. I write. I try to write to you as much as I could on those Facebook posts without being rude to the people that I was with. So first, I want to tell you about the hospital. We went to Hadassah. I'm sure all of you know Hadassah Hospital, have been to Hadassah Hospital. And the first thing that they told us that within one week of the war starting, one week, they built a complete underground ICU and ER so that if missiles do fall on Jerusalem, and they've been attempted to do so, that they could still do complicated surgeries and bring people to the emergency department without the missiles being able to reach them. You get the paradox, right? You get the irony that Hamas's terror operation is running under hospitals, being built so they can't be touched, unless, of course, the bombs there kill patients in the ER or the ICU. You get the irony, I hope. And then we go upstairs, and first we meet and visit with a soldier. A soldier who said that his whatever communications tool went off at 7.30 or 8 o'clock that morning, having no at all warning of what was going on, he and six others jumped into a helicopter. And this is just one story. This is the soldier whose face is blocked out for obvious reasons. 
who told us that he went down here and he and five of his comrades spent the rest of the day, 10 hours, because there weren't enough army being sent. They didn't know where to go. The communications were out. And he and five or six other comrades defended a kibbutz all day long. That's all they did. Three of them died. The other three were injured. And that's him injured. This guy was shot three times just three weeks before this picture. And when you asked him what he is going to do next, he said, I have one more week of rehab and then I'm going to rejoin my unit. There's no doubt in my mind that if I could continue to fight, I'm going to fight for this country. We then got up. We surrounded him. It was 10 of us clergy too, communal professionals. I should say that when you see Dov Ben Shimon the next time, make sure you tell him what an unbelievable job he did in putting this together in such quick time. We got up and we sang what you sing every Friday night. We sang the Misha Berach, praying for his safety so that he could go back and keep us safe. And then, Lucy, I don't know if you have the next one, yeah? This is a woman who is ultra-Orthodox. She and her husband and eight kids, once a month, go to an army base so that they can give the rabbi a weekend off. And they lead services for the soldiers. And this was the weekend they decided to help. With her husband and eight kids, they go down there and they have this unbelievably joyful Simchat Torah and Shabbat dinner the night before, dancing and singing and running around the tables, soldiers picking up their children. And again, 6.30 in the morning, the sirens go off. And she somehow said, this doesn't feel normal. It's not one or two or three sirens. They don't stop. And hearing explosions all around her. But remember, no one expects terrorists to be outside. They're supposed to go to the bomb shelter. So she says to her husband and kids, get up, let's go to the bomb shelter. And when they open the door to go out, they realize that this is something different. And please excuse me, I've been already told that I've been too graphic and I apologize. But folks, we're living in graphic times. I'm not making this up. This is what happened. And these are stories that we're going to have to have indelibly marked in our hearts to make sure we defend what the world thinks we should not be defending. There was a female soldier shot between her eyes outside and not dead. The bones of her head stopped the bullet from going through and she was very much alive. Asking to help, this woman happens to be a nurse, but she had no provisions with which to treat. And she starts to treat her and the woman says, all I wanna do is go to the bathroom. And you would think, given her position, like, just go to the bathroom where you are. But she wanted dignity, just please take me to the bathroom, I have to go. So this woman picks her up and takes her to the bathroom and brings her back and she now drags her into the room in which they're staying and she says, because her Hebrew didn't translate, but she said, you know, my husband's very gentle. What she meant is her husband's squeamish like I am. Cannot handle the sight of blood and he starts to sort of, she says, uh-uh, there's no time for that. We gotta treat her. She at the same time tells him to put the other three, the three smallest ones back to sleep because they're gonna need their morning nap after all. And she's thinking, why should they observe this? Can you imagine all this going through her head? Still not knowing exactly what's going on, so she goes to open the door again. And this time an Israeli soldier just falls flat into the room, bleeds out and dies in front of the family. This is just one story. She's trying to figure out what's going on and she hears other soldiers and she thinks, my goodness, okay, they're coming to help just to realize that these were Hamas terrorists that put on Israeli uniforms to dupe them and they shoot her three times in her body. Her. 
She doesn't look like she was shot three times. She somehow injures her way back into the room. She shuts the door and locks it. The terrorists can't get in. And she takes off, there's no provisions, there's no tourniquets. So she takes off her wig. And she says to her husband, wrap this up and put pressure on me. I'll be okay if you wrap, her wig. And puts it around her arm to save her life. Her kids, except for the three who are sleeping, they all see this. And she calls, and she calls the army and says, they get through, when are you coming? We'll be there in 10 minutes. It was another 10 hours until the army showed up. She calls Magan David Adom, and by the way, I love them, I love Hatzalah. We'll be there in 10 minutes. This was the reoccurring story. We're on our way 10 hours later. So most of them, including them, got a ride with someone riding through a bullet because the fighting is still going on. They figure they may as well take their shot and not have to go through night again, and they somehow get through to wherever is the next house, I guess Ashkelon or Ashdod. And I have to say this with a lot of pain, but I'm reporting back to you everything that I heard. There's going to be a long time before our homeland, our brothers and sisters, are able to trust the army and the government again. Because the one thing we always thought is that no matter what, the homeland would be secure. She looked at us and she said, we moved here because we believed in never again. But again happened three weeks ago. And folks, I hate to say it, but mayor, it's not the local authorities. People are revering their local governments, but it's just going to take a while again until the right or the left or the center trust their government and the military. It's a serious problem. The second story. We'll see what comes up next. Ah, well, wait, this, this is supposed to be the third story. Evacuees, there are about 150,000 people who were evacuated from the north and the south. And it's a small country. Where do they go? So I'm going to say, I, I never do this to people, but I'm sorry. The only two hotels in the whole place that are not accepting because they didn't want people messing up their nice rugs are the David Citadel. So we're never staying at the David Citadel again. Every other hotel, as fancy as they are, taking these people in. And you say, they say to you, you think it's nice for us to stay in a hotel. Meets Pei Ramon, it's beautiful. Well, think about what it's like to have grandparents, parents, and five or three or four kids in a room. I mean, we've gone on vacation and tried to do that, right? We've all taken our kids, and we want to kill each other. Well, that's going to be one to six to 10 to 12 months. Where there's no schools, they're creating schools on the spot. Resilience counselors are coming to spend time with them. 90-year-old men and women are walking around with machine guns because no one is going to go without having protection again. You look at someone and you think, all right, I'm sure he could take me anyway. That's what these resilience centers are like. Ethiopians who just made Aliyah in the last few years living up in Sfat, now in a hotel in Jerusalem, where you may have seen the pictures, where they said, what can we do? Go drum with them. So we sat in a drumming circle for an hour and drummed our you-know-what off with these kids who don't know how to crack a smile. In the hotel, you know me, just starting random conversations with people. And they yelled, Dub said, come on, go words, you got to go. It's time to go. We got to get on the bus. And the family said, why are you leaving? Please stay and just talk to me more. We weren't talking about anything. Sports, coffee, because there's nothing to do. So she's laying out on the lounge in the hotel, just please stay with me and talk to me for five more minutes. Heartbreaking because I didn't want to admit that we're staying at the Waldorf. And now, 
You know, go to the, to the other one, Lucy, the army one. Nope. Yeah. So we were spent a whole day down south, and we went to a center to bring soldiers food and pack underwear and socks. We walk in, and I don't even realize what's next to me. You see that you, I don't know if you can see what this is. These are soldiers who are just back from the front. They've just been in battles. And they come, and they're so tired that all the noise we're making in the room and other people are making, they're just dead asleep because they've just come from battle all night long. What happens is then they get up, and they're still 22 years old. They get up and they have coffee, they play backgammon, they smoke cigarettes, they eat cookies and delicious food that all the Jewish grandmothers in the country have made for them. Then they put the uniforms back on and they go fight. What was astounding to me, every time I saw someone, is that you just don't know which one of those kids is gonna come home again. And they're steely-eyed. So I stayed, I went in a day early and I stayed a day late. The day late, Dan Cohen and I from TSTI were somehow, and those of you who come on trips, you know I always try to get us into an army base. And it's impossible, unless when, when Bob and Eileen Cowan were on a trip, because their grandson, we got into a tank unit. When my friend Joel's son, Yaniv, was in K-9, those of you who went on that trip, you were on that trip, right? So we went to see the K-9 unit. And otherwise, Gen 669, we did last time because of Steve Roths, but that's it. I, I, on an Air Force base once when I was at Road of Shalom. But otherwise, they don't let you on. You, they, you go to some military unit, they play a violin for you, they do a dog and pony show. And I went to the, the, what's the most elite unit of the paratroopers. The only way they could describe it to me was, this is the Rangers, and this is the Navy SEALs, and this is above them. Whatever that means. I don't know enough about military. So we go on, we're driving in, and... I almost put my head down because they were in the middle. They wanted us to see a practice exercise of what it looks like in Gaza. So you have 10 of them on a hill, different position with these giant guns of all different kinds, another one operating a drone, another one is a sniper, and they have already a makeshift Gaza city built. And they're going from place to place, yelling at each other's instructions to, see, to show us what urban battle is like. And I'm just like, I've never seen anything like this. Part of me, like the little boy in me is like, wow. And part of me is like, oh my God. Place to place and, and house to house, they finish it all up and then they come and spend time with us. And then you look at them and they're these sweet boys, 18 to 22 in this unit. And then one of them, I say, why is your English so good? He's oh, I grew up in Manhattan. We talked about which high schools we both went to. He knew about me going to LaGuardia and him to Bronx Science. And he said, my parents are Israeli, and four years ago I decided to come and serve. Something like 10 out of every 500 are allowed to make it into this unit. And the person who took us there was in the unit himself. His name is Itzik. His son is in the unit. His son was fighting in Gaza as we were there. And I promise you he was not doing this to try to, you know, just get the American Jews to give him money. He's explaining the one thing they're still missing is they have the drone that shows everything above, but they don't have the drone. This is brand new technology that flies in and shows them exactly where the terrorist is. And he says, usually in every building we lose one soldier because we don't know the exact spot of the soldier. So this would allow us to know the exact spot and we'd probably be able to save one life in every battle. So, I, of course, I couldn't help it. Dan and I both said, what does it cost? And he says, it's about $20,000 a drone. And we said, we don't know how, but by the end of the weekend, you'll have two drones from our congregations. Now, the reason we were 
I realized we were led in there is because you, many of you already gave us money so that we brought over elbow pads, we brought over shoulder pads, we brought over knee pads, we brought over ceramic, which is bulletproof vests. And I said, I don't know where the money's going to come from. And, and so I go and write an email to someone who gave money to us. I just said, not for, just every day I wrote to people who donated and said, I just want you to know where your money's going. And this person calls back within moments and says, I'm going to add another $36,000. And I, I almost got crying. I say to the guy, we have almost all of it. This morning, I said to Lauren before I came here to the synagogue, before I go to work, I have to go upstairs. I never thought I'd utter these words. I have to purchase a military drone. So Mark transferred the money onto my debit card to the synagogue. Karen, it's all, it's all clean. The auditors will be fine with it. And I go on and I purchase a military drone, which is now being used because of you in Gaza tonight to save one life per battle. Those are our boys and girls. And then, God, there's so many stories I could tell you. Then we're talking to them and he says, you know, in this unit, you don't just get chosen for your physical prowess. You don't just get chosen for your intellectual prowess. You have to have all of that. We also only bring boys and girls in here who have big hearts, who understand that our job is not to be killing machines, that we have ethics and values in the ways that we operate. His own son is there, and I said to him, since you know from being in this unit what your kid is doing, are you proud or are you scared? He said, Rabbi, I haven't slept in a month because I know exactly what, what this unit does. He's the interviewer for these units. And they said that when they get out of the army, these are the ones who come and run the country because of how brilliant and sensitive and deep and EQ and IQ they have. So I said, by the way, what do you do? And he says, oh yeah, I'm a professor of molecular biology. You are? And he says, yeah, I'm, 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 I've taken the rest of the semester off because this is what I'm doing now. So these fighters are professors of molecular biology. Can you, my dad was a professor. He used to, by the way, he was in World War II, but his best friend used to say, you know your father, he came out with machine gun in one hand and Shakespeare in the other. That's as military as my dad was, but not here. And then finally, now we could go back to the picture. This is the one where I teared up. This is Ron Sherman, and you should, this is a name I want to make sure you know. You have to know at least a name a day. Ron Sherman's mom and brother came to meet with us and told us their story. Also down in one of the army bases that were overrun, hears all the missiles and calls his mother, like a lot of us would when we were feeling in trouble. She said, honey, you're overreacting. She said, mom, something, Ima, something is different here. She said, honey, you're in the safest place in the country because Gaza was not considered dangerous. Obviously, we didn't realize that it was. And you're on an army base. Go to the shelter, and you'll be fine. Of course, the guilt that she walks around with, because no one expected it, he went out and said, Mom, there are terrorists out here. And they call the next unit, and the same answer will be there in 10 minutes. Well, the 10 minutes turned into too long. She didn't hear from the kid, and she just assumed that he was dead. Until Hamas took his phone, and sent her the video of them kidnapping her, him. That's how she found that he was alive. She's sort of thankful. And she says, all I can, she said, I want to make sure you know who he is. Loves sports. Every time he's off from the army, he goes to another country in Europe. Loves dogs, says both of his parents are vets. 
And she said he's so congenial and so gregarious that she's just hoping that somehow he's able to charm those who are keeping him captive because maybe that will keep him alive. You ever see a face that you think can never smile again? That's the only way I could describe this mother. Like she didn't, it didn't seem possible for her to smile. And she said, all I want is my child to come home. All I want is to make sure you know his story and anyone you know who could lobby, anyone you know could push, please. And I, you can't help to do transfers, counter-transference. You can't help to think about your own 19-year-old son. That's what you do, right? I'm not trying to be narcissistic or selfish about it, but you see it immediately and it tears you apart because just the thought of any of us being in that position would tear us apart, right? All of us, any of us in that position would tear us apart. I just want my kid to come home. She has two other kids. We said, how do you feel about them? One is 17, he's going to the army next year. Already signed up for an elite unit. She said, I would never ever do anything, but of course send my other kids to the army. That's who we are and that's what we do. The three lessons come from this week's Torah portion. The hospitality of Abraham and Sarah. Through all of this, and again, I'm looking at so many of you who've traveled with me. Somehow they couldn't do anything but hug me, serve me coffee and tea, none of which I drink, cookies. And all of them said to me to tell you, and I want you to hear this because I wrote it on Facebook, but hear this, that me being there and the other rabbis being there representing you made them feel like they have a chance. It was no publicity stunt. It was for you to fly into a war zone to be with us is so crazy that somehow we realize you American Jews are serious about we Israeli Jews. Israelis do not say thank you. I don't say they don't have gratitude, but they do not say thank you. When they say thank you as much as they did on this trip, I know that we are in trouble. So they want you to know that they know that you represent them. And then, they said, we also want you to know that we're really, really worried about you. We said, us, we're not having our kids fight in the front lines. And they said, didn't you say your kid's at college? And I said, of course, he's at University of Maryland. She said, your kids are on the front lines these days. We're in bomb shelters and we read about it. And we are so upset and so scared of what's going on in your country, in some ways, even though it's not bullets, we're more worried about you than you may be about us, and we want you to know that we're with you. These are messages they asked me specifically to come tonight and tell you. That they're worried about us, and it's not just our own hysteria, we are also facing something existential in this country. And Israelis in bomb shelters want us to know that. Two is sacrifice. We don't have to get into if Abraham should have, could have, the angel stopping the sacrifice or attempted sacrifice of Isaac. But let me tell you something about every single person in that country is putting someone on the line to sacrifice for our nation. My, one of my best friends, you know him, Joe Rosenfeld. I've never, he's not a guy who's emotional. He's beautiful and sensitive and deep and funny and dumb and sarcastic, but he doesn't cry. It's the first time I saw him cry. And I was lucky enough because Yanif, his son, who I've told you so much about, many of you know, was off for 30 hours. And so the, right off the plane, we went right to their house. And everyone in the house was depressed except for Yanif. So Yanif said, I shouldn't tell you this because he'd be upset that I'm telling you that he wanted to go have a cigarette. So he said, I'll go outside with you. 
And two things happened. One is, as soon as he walked out the door, the two little ones, his two kids started crying hysterically because their dad's going to be gone for six months if they're lucky. And they're already having separation anxiety from him being gone. And then I said, why are you still smiling? And he said to me, it's very simple, because I get to do something about this. 37, 38 years old, I get to do something about this. And I don't know what side I'm on anymore, left, right, or center, but I do know it's either us or them. And I'm picking us right now. It's not a matter of, he, I didn't want to ask him if he was scared, but he framed it in such, again, steely, realistic way. The sacrifice all over the place that people are making that I've never seen before in my life. So there's no one, I, I made the biggest mistake, not the bit, but a horrible mistake. Michali Kentor, you may remember, she was a rabbi, uh, an intern here for a month, an Israeli rabbi coming to learn about practical rabbinics. So we've always remained close. And first of all, we're walking down the street with three other people and she pulls me aside and she just starts to cry. And she says, how am I supposed to do this? She's one of the people who was pastoring every single day, 10 hours a day to people. And she said, you went through 9-11, I don't know how to do this. We continue the conversation. Her second kid is in Greece or someplace. She said, stay there because he's going to the army next month. I said, wow, what unit is he gonna be in? Like we asked, what college? And she names this unbelievably elite unit and instead of me saying, wow, Mazel Tov, I went, oh. And she said, please do not do that. And my first reaction, because I know what he's going to be in harm's way, and the mother could only be able to navigate it if she somehow doesn't have those thoughts in her mind. The last lesson is conviction. The Abraham conviction of Sodom and Gomorrah, who didn't even mind arguing with God. And with this, I'm going to end but I want you to hear this loud and clear. You all knew a month ago that we'd be here today, politically. You all knew it. We had about five, seven, 10 days of sympathy from the world at most. I, I, what I didn't realize was how anti-Semitic it would become as quickly as this. But I knew that somehow if it's latent anti-Semitism, subtext anti-Semitism, that they would say it's enough already. I'm not a military guy. I am not someone who loves blood and guts and says, come on, let's go. My parents would never even let us use, our, you know, uh, play, what is it called when you're kids? Army, whatever it was. We weren't allowed to have guns in the house. I am the opposite of that. But folks, make sure your backbone is strong because there's no choice here. What they did on that day, and I can tell you 20 other stories that wouldn't let you sleep tonight, I'm not going to. But what they did that day, there was only one response for now and that is to eradicate this terrorist group. And I tell you this, by the way, because this is really bad news. But two of my dear friends who never talked this way said, they're almost positive they're gonna open up a Northern Front, and if they don't, that we are going to. And the reason is the following, is that the residents will never go back and live there if we don't. Because what happened, such, such psychological trauma, the Iron Dome, which we thought has been so great, was actually a protection of Israelis not realizing how bad it was. So what, some rockets come over. 99% of them get shot down. The other side kept on getting angrier and angrier, became smarter and smarter, and we became lazy. I say this all obviously tongue in cheek, but the Iron Dome protected us in a way that we didn't realize how bad it was. They're not gonna go back and live in the northern border of Hezbollah is 20 feet away because they know what they're capable of after what happened on October the 7th. So I'm saying that we have to have backbone and not get weary and make sure that we continue to stand up for our people. 
I know what happens with fatigue. Eventually, we'll start getting tired of the war. We'll start turning our gaze someplace else, but we can't. We cannot. They need us really, really badly, and we cannot stop supporting them. I'm not telling you not to go on vacation on Thanksgiving. I'm not telling you not to go to the Jets game on Monday night. I'm not telling you not to go out for a drink with your friends. But part of each of your days has to be this backbone of conviction for our homeland. This is existential at its core. I am not up here to, to, to sound like the pontificating rabbi. This is existential at its core. Hear me loud and clear. And also hear me that I promise you from talking to these high-level officers that none of them want to kill innocent people. They don't. They don't talk about it. They don't laugh about it. They don't joke around about it. Don't be so quick when someone says, ceasefire obviously has like a whole subtext under it, but a human corridor is going to be created. It's going to be. Israel doesn't operate otherwise. So if you hear, listen carefully to Netanyahu today, he said, we're not doing this until we get hostages back. Already, that's a, there's, a, there's a subtext negotiating position there. So, but at the same time, we're not going to let soldiers sit as sitting ducks to be shot at during a day of a temporary ceasefire. But it doesn't mean that something in between won't happen. And be very careful to make sure that you're not instinctive and reflexive in your reaction because we have to trust that they're going to prosecute this war with a focus that's not about killing innocents, but is also making sure that we're never going to let what happened on October 7th happen again. Third, and there's only four, third is, I'm trying to think of which one I want to tell you first. Third is that I'm really nervous about us. Not just about, I'll, we have plenty of weeks to talk about this. I, I will get to the campus and I'll get the anti-Semitism. It's, it's, it's a whole another 10 sermons. I'm worried about how divided we've been. And I've said this to you for years and you don't really listen to me or you say you listen to me and you go back to your own echo chamber and so do I. I try not to, but we all do. Folks, if you, I see the posts on Facebook. I see it, on, I just don't react to them. It's not smart for rabbis to react on Facebook. But we know that there are people on each side that are just red lines for us that we cannot deal with. And I'll, I'll explain more in future sermons what, where I think that red line is. But for people who have different positions than you, for us to ever point our fingers and tell them they're not good enough Jews, they're not really Zionists, not, we are making ourselves crazy. And they keep on saying to us that we have to be unified. Folks, if you get duped by politicians, I'm going to say something really hard, and you'll probably be really angry at me for it, but I'm going to say it anyway. You may be contributing to the extermination of our people. You hear what I'm saying to you? If you allow yourself to get caught in divisions of the last 10 years here, just because you want to win your soundbite argument, you're turning your gaze away from supporting our people, and in fact, we may be contributing to the extinction of our people. That's where we're at. So the next time we want to mouth off on someone or tell you how horrible you are because you like this politician's tweet, and I'm not talking about AOC and the squad. There are red lines. But I'm talking about people on the left and the right who are supportive of Israel and maybe a little bit different than you are. But every one of them we need, every one of them, do not contribute to division anymore. We do not have that luxury. 
Do you hear me? We do not have that luxury. Am Yisrael Chai means one people. You try to pull out from that and you are contributing to it. And I'm getting this upset because it is that serious and they're saying it to us also. Stop being a Democrat and stop being a Republican and start being a Zionist like you are but without the ifs, buts, and conditions. No more conditions against each other. We don't have the luxury. Because, here's the fourth and final point, is Ainli Eretzacheret. Those of you who are over 75 years old, you sort of remember when the state was established. For the rest of us, all we know is in Israel. But even if you're 85 or 90 or 95, guess what? You're not 2,000 years old. For 2,000 years, we went without a land. This is the one we got. And if we do not keep our gaze specifically on this, the Ainli Eretz Acherit, we don't have another one. And I don't want to go down the road to understanding what it might mean if that land is somehow gone. And I don't think it's going to be. I'm sort of 98% sure it's not going to be, but that 2% scares the heck out of me. Can't exist without them. We just can't. So I'll end with something that's sad, but also hopeful. One of the moms who lost two children in one day decided they don't always use coffins in Israel because of a religious law that she would bury both boys together holding hands. Because the symbol for her and her burying her boys was that we have to be in achdut, we have to be in brotherhood and sisterhood with each other. And she thought if she could send this message to you, she told me to tell you this, that if her two dead sons could die in the grave, be in the grave holding hands, then we certainly have to understand what unity is about with each other and with our brothers and sisters there. If that doesn't send the message to the bottom of your spine and your spirit as it did me, then I'm not sure what else will. So I'm hopeful if we stick together. I'm hopeful because look at this sanctuary. Like I wanted to start making fun of some of you who have seen more in the last four weeks than I've seen in my 18 years here. No offense. Yeah, I'm looking at you. It's okay, he's the guy that hired me. But you get what I'm saying. When you, it actually scares me when you show up. You show up and you show up, it scares me. But so one of you said to me tonight, my life has changed since October the 7th. I'm never going to stop coming here. Let's not stop coming here. Because Ainli Eretz Acheret, there's not another homeland. There's not another TBJ. And my tears, when you walked in, I thought I wouldn't control myself. Because for you to show up in such numbers means that I wasn't the brave one. Everyone was just so brave. So what? Four days there. By the way, just for the record, I was never in a shelter the whole week. Just luck. One hour before the missile came, one hour after, I was just never in it. Never saw any action or anything like that. You're brave. You're brave because you come here in numbers and say, I'm backing up my clergy, they're going to stand up for it, we're all going to stand up. Am Yisrael Chai. Am Yisrael Chai. Say it. Am Yisrael Chai. Remember I told you, we may be terrified, but we'll never be paralyzed. I love all of you for being who you are and for standing up in the way that made Israelis feel like they have brothers and sisters every place. We are brothers and sisters and we're their brothers and sisters. I'll be leading a trip sooner than you think. Those of you who are ready to hop on, 
It's not going to be next month or the month after, but maybe the month after that. I'm Yisrael Chai. Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Thank you for listening to this edition of Call Jeshurun. If you would like to learn more, visit our website at tbj.org and follow us on social media for updates on all our upcoming opportunities for engagement. We hope to see you soon.